This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Your Money on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Ken Smethers. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Your Money uh, here in Sirius XM's Business Radio Channel 111. It's powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ken Smethers, a professor here in Philadelphia. We are live every Tuesday from 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern. That's 2 to 4 p.m. for those of you on the West Coast. And the purpose of this show is simply to help you make better decisions with your money. First part of the show, we often focus on ways how to increase your productivity and save your, uh, well, increase your income as well. And of course, maybe even save you some money in, in today's cases on home buying. And the rest of the show, we t- typically focus on ways how to spend your money, save your income, and um, of course, doing things like paying on debts, buying insurance, and of course, how to invest your money. And really, mo- the most fun part of the show is we take your calls throughout the entire show and give you advice about your own financial needs. You can connect with me online by going to my website, kentonmoney.com, and I have a list of financial advisors there who are fee-only and agree with my approach to low-cost passive index investing. So today I'm joined by three great guests. The first will be Brendan DeSimmon, um, who is uh, an author of Next Generation Real Estate, and uh, spring is often when people start looking for homes, and he will be talking about some tips from home buyers. With that, let me introduce my first guest, who's Brendan DeSimmon, um, and uh, he's a real estate ec- uh, expert, and it's uh, D. Simone. My producer just corrected me. I'm so sorry about that, Brendan. And he is a real estate expert um, across uh, the United States, and his advice has been uh, published in a book called Next Generation Real Estate and um, uh, a, a semicolon here, New Rules for Smarter Home Buying and Faster Selling. Again, Next Generation uh, Real Estate, um, New Rules for a Smarter Home Buying and Faster Selling in his syndicated column has been on, um, uh, seen by 70 million visitors per month on Zillow and also syndicated to many other uh, websites, including Forbes, Yahoo, and many others. Welcome to the show, Brendan. Sorry about messing up your last name there. Uh, don't worry about it. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and if you have a question about home buying, just give us a call. Live in twos. Let's pick up the phone. Give me a call here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And so, uh, Brad, just give us a little bit more background before we dig in. You know, your your background in, in real estate. What makes you an expert? Well, you know, I sold real estate in San Francisco for many years. I started in two thousand two. Had a Pretty exciting career there for 10 years, selling single-family homes, multi-unit buildings, working with tenants, landlords, developers, and uh, pretty rode the wave of many, many markets in the San Francisco uh, yeah. Bay Area. Um, and I'm an investor myself. I buy and sell a lot of houses. I invest in houses. I keep them and hold them. I'm a landlord. I, from time to time, buy a house that I flip and develop. Um, I've written a lot about real estate for Zillow through the years, and uh, currently I actually manage a brokerage up here in Westchester County, north of New York City, I have about 110 agents uh, helping them with their clients and buying and selling and kind of assisting them through the process, shepherding them through the process of home buying and home selling, both you know first-time buyers, millennials, yeah. all the way up to baby boomers who are selling their long-time family homes. Excellent. And so, you know, we're headed in the house uh, 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 hunting season right now. It's, you know, it's uh, spring, the common 
time. <laughs> uh, certainly San Francisco, I, I've lived there. I, I know that uh, it's a very uh, up and down uh, type of place, so very up right now. But overall, you know, the rest of the country, uh, how, how's things looking? Is it kind of a lot of supply? Is it a tight market? Give us your, your general sense. Yeah, most parts of the country right now are, you know, very tight inventory. We're low in inventory. It's a shortage. Uh, home builders can't build them fast enough. There's just not a lot of houses to go buy for the amount of buyers that are out there. So it's a supply-demand issue, particularly the first-time home buyer price point under $500,000, under a million dollars. Um, so we see it more of a um, seller's market in those price points. And do, and, do you see that any, any – Reaction to the tax uh, to the tax and job jobs act in terms of either deductibility of interest. A lot of people won't be deducting their interest, or you know the cap on mortgage interest deduction. Yeah, that really affected the higher end of the market. You know, yeah. over a million dollars or two million dollars, where they would not be able to maximize the benefit. Uh, we don't see it as much at the lower end. What we do see is people have um, kind of come out of the woodwork after many years. They have had their twenty percent saved. Uh, they have great credit. They are first-time home buyers, and they yeah. really want to buy. They want to be in the market. They want to own, and they want their own place, and they're sick of renting. And that's what's really happening at that lower end, entry-level price point. Um, and they're not affected as much by the day-to-day craziness of the stock market. They've got their money saved. It's firm. They don't really have the see the effects of their you know portfolio changing day-to-day like some of the multi-million-dollar price points. Yeah, and I'm speaking with Brendan D. Simon. Uh, Simon owned D. Simon. I'm screwing that up. I'm apologize, embarrassed. Um, <laughs> and uh, he's a real estate expert here at uh, well Zillow, and uh, where he has a weekly um, uh, column. And uh, so we're talking about house hunting. If you want to give us a call here, or, uh, uh, live on Tuesdays, pick up the phone at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And so tell me uh, a little bit about some of the tactics of uh, you know buyers in the low inventory market, what are some of the things that they should be doing? You know, look, if you're really in a tight inventory market and you are a serious buyer, I would say go to the house more than once. Go see it two, three, four times and make your interest known to the homeowner. The more times you see the house, the more you know about the house, the more serious you will be if it's a competitive bidding situation. Um, Sometimes it's not always the best price. It's really the best buyer. What that means is that if there's multiple offers and you have one price that's $10,000 higher than the other offers, but that buyer only went to the house once. They haven't really made themselves known. You've got a lower price offer who's been there three or four times. They've got their pre-approved letter. They've really even wrote a letter. They've gone as far as to make themselves know they want to buy this house. They're the buyer who's most likely to close. And why is that? So are you saying that sellers don't always go at the best price? They they might pick a buyer with with a lower price just because they presented the letter? Not just presenting the credit letter, but because they're showing their serious interest in, in buying the house. Yeah. You want the buyer who's going to close. Sometimes yeah. you have a buyer who's out the first Sunday out. They make the first offer. They may not be ready to close. They're going to offer more bid because they think they're competing. But the buyer who's been in the market for three, four, five months, they've yeah. seen 10, 20, 30 houses. They've lost out of one or two other houses. They know the market. They want to close. They're going to close. Those motivated buyers are always better buyers, and you can always counter them to the higher price point uh, as opposed to just taking the higher price one out of the gate. Sometimes the, someone just comes in in a competitive market. They want to win. They throw out a high number, and when it comes down to it, they get cold feet. They have problems after their inspection. Something happens. They get cold yeah. feet after a week, two weeks. You've lost the momentum. You've lost the market. You want to go with a better buyer, not the better price. How many, house, how many transactions don't close on, on average? I'd say a good third uh, fall wow. apart in one way or the other. I think so. 
Yeah. And is that is that does that different uh, yeah, kind of the, in the range of the market, high end versus low end? I think it really depends on the market. Look, the stronger the market, uh, the less we see transactions falling apart. Yeah. Um, but it depends. It depend, It really doesn't matter the price point. It's really the strength of the market. But yeah. I think a lot of times, you know, buyers get cold feet. They don't know the market well enough. Something happens, or they just have inspections and find out the house needs a lot more work than they ever never anticipated. Uh, the costs are going to be more, and the seller and buyer really can't come to terms with what it's going to take. Uh, so deals fall apart all the time. Um, and I'm speaking with Brendan D. Sim. Own and he is the real estate expert. Uh, column every week at Zillow, read by over seven million uh, people. If you got a question about housing and buying, um, now is the time to call uh, live on Tuesdays here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Let me go to Jerry calling from Illinois. How can I help you, Jerry? Good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, thanks for listening to me. Uh, I, my wife and I owned a couple of condominiums in downtown Chicago yeah. um, that we used to, we rented out as rental property. And we're not really landlords, uh, but you know we picked up these when it's at a pretty good price. And that was some years ago. And now, you know, but the, the experience of being landlord hasn't really been pleasant. Yeah. Uh, dealing with the tenants. Uh, dealing with issues. I mean, it hasn't been horrible, but it hasn't been great. Um, and I'm realizing that as I get older and as I head into retirement, I'm really not fit to be a landlord. And so I said to my wife, let's just take that money from the condos and put it in a residential REIT, a, a real estate investment trust. Mm-hmm. And and that way, you know, we have uh, kind of like uh, bought, bought the index of homes, so to speak, spreading the risk throughout the country and not in one particular locale. And we don't deal with individual tenants and that kind of stuff. I'm just curious, generally speaking, what do you think the returns would be on a residential real estate investment trust versus buying a couple of condominiums and renting them out? Yeah, and just to be very clear, because terminology is important here. I mean, you're not talking about a personal residence uh, trust. You're you're actually talking about selling your properties and put them into a REIT that happens to... No, inv- no, okay. no. I'm talking about selling the properties, taking the cash... Yep. Yep. and investing it uh, in an ETF on the stock market, sure. like, yeah, yeah. like REZ, a residential yeah, real yeah. estate But why, why, why then residential uh, rate? Why not just, you could even do commercial rate? There's lots of different types of rates. Even Well, I've actually already got some of the Vanguard regular REIT, but I, I tend to feel that it's more heavily commercial, and I'm a little nervous about owning a lot of shopping malls in this okay. environment. Okay. And because it, it, the, the distinction is what I was going to say for the other listeners is that you can actually put your own property into a, what's called a personal residential trust. But the difference there is that that's usually for estate planning uh, uh, purposes. And so, uh, Brendan, I don't know if you do a lot of uh, work on you know investment returns related to REITs. But, uh, well, first, let me ask you, is that, that, that an area that you know about? I do. I know enough. It really okay. depends on the REIT and depends on what your experience level is with it. For someone like you, it sounds to me like you don't want to be a landlord, but you want to be in real estate. So I'd say, yes, go and research the best uh, real estate investment trust out there. Um, for me personally, I think that I know real estate. I touch it. I feel it. If I live in a town and I know that town really well, I think I can do better personally fixing up houses, making uh, houses get higher rents, finding better tenants. So for me personally, I could probably get a better return in my local town that I know well than a trust. But if and I don't mind being a landlord. So it's a personal decision. It sounds to me like a real estate investment trust is a great idea for you. Just make sure you do your research 
Um, and they can pay out higher than the stock market a lot of times. So just uh, it's a personal decision. Yeah, and it, it, it certainly it can. It, it also also it comes with with, with additional uh, uh, risk as well. And, and Jerry, what I'd say is REITs in general. You know, you're t- you're taking um, you're taking a, ri- uh, a, a more concentrated risk than the broader stock market, which includes things like home builders and many other uh, uh, things. Uh, but the advantage of the REIT versus what you're you know kind of doing it yourself is is really two advantages. One is what you just alluded to is that you kind of get away from, you know, the management and stuff that you just don't enjoy doing that Brendan does enjoy doing, um, you know, fixing up things and responding to tenants and all those types of things. Uh, but the second thing is you're also calling from Illinois and, you know, uh, Illinois has its own issues like many states do, uh, but Illinois in particular um, has a lot of fiscal issues at the state level. We don't know how, I mean, lots of studies have shown that they get that eventually does get capitalized in the housing prices. Um, and so because, you know, people anticipate higher taxes and so forth, that they kind of deal with the looming um, uh, pension issues, especially in the state of Illinois. And so uh, as a result of that, you know, what you also do is you kind of diversify um, kind of your landscape in terms of your investment. You spread it out. Even if you're going to stick into uh, the residential REIT class, you're, you're now investing in properties throughout the United States that are less susceptible to, you know, Illinois-specific or your even your town-specific uh, kind of financial uh, situation. So uh, I think you hit it on the head. You know, for me, it's the, the fact that you don't enjoy doing this. I mean, it's not your occupation. Um, it's not what you want to do. It's just an investment for you. From from that perspective, uh, rather than hiring a management company paying them 50% of your take for that, might as well diversify, go, go into a REIT. Is that helpful, Jerry? Yeah, that sounds great. And there's a couple. I was looking at some. There's actually some. I guess I wouldn't call it an index. Yeah. But there are some uh, funds that buy multiple REITs. You know, for example, public storage and, and companies that invest in apartment complexes and so on. So your risk is even further uh, diversified. I guess. Yeah. You, well, it, it can be. I mean, it can be further diversified, or it can actually be um, less diversified. For example, a lot of the REITs, like the type Vanguard sells, you mentioned that earlier. Um, it really invests in lots and lots of properties, uh, whether it's commercial, um, a re- residential. Uh, if you really want to get a mix of both, you just invest a little money in, right. in both. Um, but, and that's really the, kind of the way to do that. Uh, often the REITs that you're talking about, uh, is they technically do qualify for, for REITs. There are certain rules that qualify for a REIT, um, and they allow for, for investments in, uh, in these t- the types of things that you just mentioned about storage facilities and the whole laundry list of things that you wouldn't even think would be in a REIT. Uh, can sometimes qualify to be in a REIT. They usually it usually means actually less diversification those types of vehicles because they maybe are only holding twenty, thirty, forty, fifty entities rather than you know several hundred, even thousand uh, entities. So I'd be a little bit cautious about that. Um, but nonetheless, I think it, it's uh, it's better. It's a, a step up, you know, from from your current uh, situation. So thanks so much for calling, Brendan uh, uh, Jerry. I really appreciate it. And you can tell who got very little sleep last night. That's me. And um, again, speaking with uh, Brendan 
Dieselman, and uh, do, doing a great job answering your questions and being especially patient with me um, on my uh, very little sleep <laughs> last night. And uh, give me a call here. We'll talk about um, a, a house buying here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And so, Brendan, you mentioned that in fact it's a, a tight market. Often you see, in fact, you saw this. You mentioned this in San Francisco. You often see this in places like that. Someone just comes in. <laughs> it's not about pre-qualification. They got a check, you know, all cash offer. So how do you compete against those guys? You know, it's a tough one. Most people assume they can't compete with a cash offer. But uh, the cash guys, the investors, they tend to want to get a discount for their cash, so they're not going to come in at a full price. Yeah. Or as a regular home buyer getting a mortgage, they might pay a little bit higher. A seller is willing to leave some money on the table for the certainty of the deal closing, and cash is more certain than someone getting a mortgage. So sometimes you may have to pay a little bit more, but get your ducks in a row. Have a pre-approval letter. Go as far as to getting an appraisal scheduled within the first week to get the contract signed. Make sure you have a preliminary title uh, order already. Get everything you need to put the loan done ahead of time and let that seller know you have a bulletproof, foolproof loan ready to go and you'll close just as fast as that cash buyer. Yeah, and we talked we talked about letters earlier. You you said that they you you feel that they help because they kind of show earnest. Is, is that true? Is that you do? I mean, um, do you feel like letters in particular are the, are the, are the best way of kind of showing earnest that you're going to close, or are there other other methods on top of letters? I mean, look. I think first of all, you need a pre-approved letter to, with your yeah. offer. So a letter from the mortgage lender or bank saying yeah. you can get a loan. You definitely need to have. I think if you're a serious buyer, it's really the house of your dreams, and it is competitive. Yeah. It helps you stand out. It helps say, t- tell your story, tell you who, tell the seller who you are, makes it more personal. I wouldn't do it for a seller who's an investor or a seller who's only been in the house for a couple of years, but maybe a long-term seller. They raised yeah. a family in the house for 30 years. There's some emotional component to the sale. And if they have more than one person at a similar price point with similar terms, they may want to go with someone who writes a letter. There may be some emotional connection to that bar that sure. might help put you over the edge. And, and then let's talk about uh, finding homes that are certainly off market, something that we normally wouldn't talk about, but given that it's a tight market, you know, uh, how do you find, find those places? Maybe they're being sold directly by the seller, they're not on the MLS, or maybe it's not even, you know, I've done this, uh, where we've, uh, you know, written to somebody, hey, you're interested. Uh, what, what are your thoughts there? couple of different ways. I mean, first of all, yeah. if, you know, if you find a couple of streets you like, you can write personal letters to, to owners, put them in their mailboxes. I've had, as an agent, I've done that on behalf of my buyers in the past. I've written letters to particular houses on particular blocks and saying, I'm a buyer who wants to buy your house. Call me if you're interested. Uh, that works. Another way is have your agent go back to houses that were listed for sale two years ago, three years ago, maybe even a year ago but they expired, they never sold, they were a different market two, three, four years ago. Those sellers may be likely sellers again. Those sellers might have enlisted a number they could have gotten three, four years ago. Maybe they'll get that number today. So have your agent go back and look up these old expired listings from two or three years ago. They may be real sellers and you can make a deal off the market. Mm. Are, are there any reasons or cities in particular that look good right now? We said it's a tight market, but is that true everywhere? I'm hearing that, you know, look, all over the country it's tight. People are saying, uh, place in the south, Austin, Texas, the strong market. Uh, in Tennessee, I think in Memphis, um, they're saying are strong markets. Fundamentals are good with employment rates, with interest rates. Um, I think that, you know, look, anywhere you are, I think for the most part, if you want to buy a house, you want to settle down for five, seven, ten years, um, you can get a good investment. Uh, you shouldn't really try to time the market or try right. have a certain location based on where you think you're going to get the biggest increase in 
and your value. You have to you know, live where you want to live and know your market, know your towns, know the neighborhoods, make a smart decision. Yeah. And what about the classic question of kind of buying versus renting from a financial perspective? Is it just a simply a question of how long you're going to be around or are there other considerations that you give people? It really is. Look, if you've got your down payment you can afford to buy, if you can commit to at least five to seven years in that house, I say go and buy. It's probably a better bet to buy the house than to rent. Um, if you think you can only commit to a couple of years, stay renting. You can you know, cancel your lease, end of, the, end of the year, whatever you want to do. Once you buy a house, you're in it for a long haul. Uh, so I'd want to give it at least five to seven years. Especially with the rates going up, you have to really know how long you're going to be in this house. Look, no one has a crystal ball and life yeah. does throw kind of curveballs at you, but you have a pretty good sense of what you're in for. So if you can't commit to five or seven years, maybe you should stick with renting. Yeah. And so your book, The Next Generation Real Estate, you, you know, you talk about technology and how it's really changed the nature of home buying uh, today. I mean, we have MLS, you know, listings at our, at our fingertips. And so, you know, it quickly leads to kind of information over, overload. You know, how do you keep help your clients you know, keep from being kind of overwhelmed because, you know, it's it's very tempting, to, you know, go go onto the Zillows, the Trulias, and so forth, and just, you know, try to hunt those places, call up your real estate agent. It seems like it'd be overwhelming on both sides, you as the agent, agent and as buyers as well. You know, I think nowadays having an agent's more valuable than ever because there is so much information online. And an agent can help you weed through some of that stuff. An agent has seen all these houses in the neighborhood. They're local specialists. They know the market. They know the sellers. They know the other agents. They can help make sense of what you're seeing online. And once you get very serious about buying and you've nailed down a certain school district or town or neighborhood, your agent really comes into play. They know the last 10 houses that have sold in the block. They know the situation that happened with the last couple of comps that are similar to this house. Uh, They can get through a lot of information for you and help you make a much more better decision, much more informed decision than just looking online. You can only look online for so far. I say yeah. the looking online is the research and discovery phase. When you get really serious, you're drilling down, you got to work with a good local agent. Yeah. And, and you also say in your book uh, that there are three implications, um, you know, that govern all buyers, sellers, and real estate, uh, you know, transactions, you know, the emotional, the practical, the financial. Talk about that. Yeah, look, buying a house, selling a house is very emotional. It's, you're putting a lot of money down. It's where you're going to start your family. It's where you're going to make memories. It's where you're going to put your furniture. There's a lot going on emotionally. It's where you might take your next stage of your life. So you have to really know that your emotions could get increased when you're trying to make offers. You lose out. You may kind of let your emotions get the best of you. Put them in check. Um, be cautious of that. There's practical implication. You got to be within 30 minutes of your work. You got to be, you know, a certain t- type of floor plan. You have to know what's practical for you and what's important. And then there's the financial considerations. You know, how much can you afford? You know that. How much? What's your stretch? Know up front. The most I can spend is up here. The least I can spend is here. I really want to try to get to this number. Know what the I mean, a monthly nut will be on a mortgage, yeah. and know the different price points where you could. Um, Buy a house and know those financial implications. But all three of them together really matter. And don't you know? Don't don't underestimate your emotions because they could get the best of you. Yeah. In terms of buying in foreclosure homes in foreclosure, I mean, it seems tempting. Um, less of those, you know, available certainly today. Do you, do you think it's a good idea? I tend to leave the foreclosures to the more experienced investors. Yeah. They're comfortable. Um, 
buying houses without you know any history with buying them as is. A lot of times you can't get loans on them. And I'd say first-time home buyers, you're going to be lured in by the price and by the deals. Um, there, you don't get something for nothing in this world, so I say stick with uh, regular sellers and not so much the bank foreclosures. Yeah, and is it admit that there's particular times of the month that are kind of better than others? I don't think so. You buy when you're ready to buy. You sell when you're ready to sell. Yeah. And what about the kind of walking away? I mean, how do you know when it's time to just kind of cut your losses and you know say this isn't worth it either from the buyer's perspective or the seller's? That's really your gut reaction to things. That's where the emotional part comes into place. You know, it's getting to be too expensive. I'm not feeling comfortable. Something doesn't seem right to me. If it sounds too good to be true, or it's just getting to be way more than you started out, um, then then be okay backing away. A lot of times, someone starts out at a certain price point in these competitive markets. You get bid over twenty, thirty thousand dollars more than you than the list price. Your not monthly is going to be going up by a lot more, and it's different. It's a different house all of a sudden, and all of a sudden you find out it needs a lot more work than you thought. Yeah. Not the same house you were offering on two days earlier. Um, so just go with your gut. Doesn't feel right. Time to walk away. Yeah, from their seller's perspective, so they'd be negotiating a little bit harder in these in, in the current market, given that it's a thin market. You think more scarce supply gives them kind of a little bit more leverage. I think so for sure. I think that you can ask what you want in these markets where there's very limited supply. You really are in the driver's seat, and you could afford to ask for more money or get better terms. Sometimes sellers say, you know, I want to leave a little bit of money on the table. I want to stay in the house for four or five months. I want a long closing, or I want a quick closing, and I want to rent back the house from the buyer for three months because I haven't found my own place to buy yet. So you can get better terms in a tight inventory market. Excellent. Brendan, fantastic job. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.